0: What evidence is there that the team of volunteer rescuers known as the White Helmets are actually a propaganda construct designed to enable regime change in Syria? What is motivating the entity Avaz and its PR firm Purpose to promote both regime change narratives and aggressive action on climate change? What evidence is there that the White Helmets are aligned with terrorist groups and taking part in organ harvesting and other crimes? Could suspicions around the beneficiaries of international funding of the White Helmets be linked to the recent death of the group's founder, James Lou Mazurier? Why are some on-the-ground journalists in Syria being targeted by a sophisticated media smear campaign? On this week's Global Research News Hour, we pierce the impressive propaganda fog around the White Helmets Group and policy around Syria generally, and try to get a grasp on the powerful figures that are shaping media and NGO discourse around military interventions and the green agenda. Our guests for the hour are independent journalists Corey Morningstar and Vanessa Beely. On this week's program, White Helmets, James LeMazurier, and the Humanitarian Regime Change Network. Conversations with Corey Morningstar and Vanessa Billy Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of December 13th, 2019. I'm series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on an occupied Anishinaabe Gakin, the homeland of the Métis Nation and the historical territory of the Nihilawak and the Nakota. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Before taking up the task of training Syrian volunteers for search and rescue operations in 2013, Le Mesurier was a British Army veteran and a private security contractor from 2008 to 2012 working for Good Harbor, run by Richard Clark, the former Bush administration counterterrorism czar. Much like Eric Prince of the Blackwater fame, the Missouriers' work included training several thousand mercenaries for the United Arab Emirates, oil and gas field protection force and designing security infrastructure for the police state of Abu Dhabi, a job description that helped him recruit Syrian volunteers from refugee camps in Turkey willing to do dirty humanitarian work in enclaves carved out by militant factions in Syria's war zones. In this line of work, one is likely to make powerful enemies, including intelligence agencies and militant groups. He could have been killed by any one of them, In particular, the White Helmets operate in Al-Nusra Front's territory in Syria's northwestern Idlib province and are known to take orders from the terrorist outfit. That comes from the article, White Helmets Founder Was Allegedly Assassinated, Turkish Report, by Nauman Sadiq, posted December 11th. When our own government no longer sees us as human beings with dignity and worth, but as things to be manipulated, maneuvered, mined for data, manhandled by police, conned into believing it has our best interests at heart, mistreated, and then jails us, if we dare step out of line, punishes us unjustly without remorse, and refuses to own up to its failings, we are no longer operating under a constitutional republic. Instead, what we are experiencing is a pathocracy. Tyranny at the hands of a psychopathic government which operates against the interest of its own people except for favoring certain groups. So where does that leave us? Having allowed the government to expand and exceed our reach, we find ourselves on the losing end of a tug-of-war over control of our country and our lives. And for as long as we let them, government officials will continue to trample on our rights, always justifying their actions as being for the good of the people. That comes from the article, Sin Taxes and Orwellian Methods of Compliance that Feed the Government's Greed, by John W. Whitehead, posted December 11th, originally published on the Rutherford Institute. China has invested heavily in railways in remote areas like the Three Gorges, Qinhai, Xinjiang, and Tibet in an attempt to connect the length and breadth of the country with convenient and fast transportation. Chinese leaders recognized from the beginning that economic development follows transportation and thus maintaining control of the transportation infrastructure derives from a determination to distribute the benefits of development to the entire nation." The reality is that not all infrastructure is destined to be financially profitable, profitability being the only measure by Western standards. A privately developed railway system would be built only on the most profitable routes, those likely to amass billions for their owners, but that would leave perhaps half the nation destitute for transportation and sentenced to perpetual poverty. Thus, railway privatization would saddle China's central government with the cost of building all the unprofitable routes without benefiting from the profitable segments. That comes from the article, From Shanghai to Chongqing, The World's Most Expensive Railway, by Larry Romanoff, posted December 11th. Unlike the USSR, which kept oppression confined within its borders and those of neighboring countries under its sphere of influence, Britain together with the American empire to which it handed over the baton of imperialism after WW2 has interfered on pretty much every continent except Antarctica. In modern times, we see the UK now a vassal of the U S led NATO empire condemn nations that refuse to submit to Western hegemony. Apologists for empire claim it brought progress such as railways, infrastructure, education, cricket, as well as free trade and order, i.e. Pax Britannica interest, Irrespective of whether such gifts were appreciated by occupied nations, this line of reasoning opens up a dangerous precedent. For example, supporters of Stalin overlook his despotism by crediting him with rapidly industrializing an underdeveloped nation that later played a major role in defeating Nazism, is bestowing upon him an honor that instead belongs to millions of rank-and-file soldiers, officers, and commanders of the Red Army. That comes from the article, Divide and Conquer Tactics – Millions of Deaths Triggered by the British Empire by Tomas Pierschonik, posted December 11th, originally published on RT. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. In her emotional testimony to the Congressional Human Rights Caucus on October 10, 1990, a 15-year-old girl who provided only her first name, Nayira, stated that after the Iraqis had invaded Kuwait, she witnessed Iraqi soldiers take babies out of incubators in a Kuwaiti hospital, take the incubators, and leave the babies to die. Her story was initially corroborated by Amnesty International and testimony from evacuees. The testimony was widely publicized and was cited numerous times by United States senators and President George Herbert Walker Bush in their rationale to back Kuwait in the Gulf War. In 1992, it was revealed by outlets like ABC and the CBC that Naira's last name was actually Al-Sabah and that she was the daughter of Saud al saba the Kuwaiti ambassador to the United States, Furthermore, it was revealed that her testimony was organized as part of the Citizens for a Free Kuwait public relations campaign, which was run by an American public relations firm, Hill & Knowlton, for the Kuwaiti government. Following this, al sabas testimony has come to be regarded as a classical example of modern atrocity propaganda. Listeners, I want you to uh, reflect on that illustration. We're talking about an episode where a, uh, a war agenda was enabled by a uh, very clever narrative that sparked public outrage and public sympathy and was successful and resulted in a major bloodbath and sanctions that decimated uh, hundreds of thousands of children and continues to this day to be a a major um, indictment of uh, US and uh, NATO foreign policy Because on today's show, we're going to be talking about these narratives that are paving the way for war and uh, imperial greed and rapacity, with two uh, individuals who've done uh, their homework on uh, some of these modern narratives and the people behind them. And uh, they're going to be (coughs) sharing. I mean, I've interviewed them both before on this show. I have one of them. uh, Her name is Vanessa Beely. Uh, she's just completed a, uh, a, a seven-city tour of Canada, <laughs> a speaking tour on uh, her research uh, into the uh, Syrian war agenda and Canada's role there. In there, and uh, of course, on the other on the line we have uh, Corey Morningstar, who we've, again we've had on the show program before. She's uh, you know, uh, one of the leading writers on uh, what's being called the the non-profit industrial complex and how that has had a corrosive impact on the uh, environmental movements and uh, environmental and social consciousness. So before I bring them on, I want to take a a couple of minutes more just to uh, introduce them briefly. Uh, Vanessa Bealy is an independent journalist and photographer who has worked extensively in the Middle East on the ground in Syria, Egypt, Iraq, and Palestine while also covering the conflict in Yemen since 2015. In 2017, Vanessa was a finalist for the prestigious Martha Gellhorn Prize for Journalism which was won by the much acclaimed Robert Perry that year. In 2018, Vanessa was named one of the 238 most respected journalists in the United Kingdom by the British National Council For the training of journalists and in 2019 vanessa was among recipients of the serena shim award for uncompromising integrity in journalism and she writes uh, regularly to uh, mint press news 21st century wire the last american uk column and global research among other independent outlets and uh, joining us by phone as i mentioned corey morningstar independent investigative journalist writer and environmental activist focusing on global ecological collapse and political analysis of the non-profit industrial complex. She resides in London, Canada, and her recent writings can be found on Wrong Kind of Green, The Art of Annihilation, and Counterpunch. Her writing has also been published by Bolivia Rising and Cambio, the official newspaper for the plurinational state of Bolivia, or maybe at least, (laughs) I'm not sure if that's still the case, but Mm -hmm. uh, at any rate, Vanessa, Corey, welcome to uh, the Global Research News Hour.
1: Good morning. Good morning, Michael.
0: Okay, so um, it's great to have you on. Um, we might start uh, by maybe just uh, chatting a little bit about some of the uh, important recent developments that uh, have uh, surfaced in, in recent weeks. Uh, now, Vanessa, you well, both of you actually have, have done research into the White Helmets. Mm-hmm. I know that, uh, you know, Corey, uh, as far as I know, Corey pretty much initiated or yep. was one of the major... Uh, <laughs> Uh, you, you people in instigating this okay. research, and I know Vanessa, you uh, picked up that baton pretty uh, adeptly. And, well, uh, yeah, I mean, Corey,
1: uh, Corey, put me on the road to the white helmets, <laughs> let's say, and also educated me extensively on the NPIC and the NGO complex. I mean, I owe a lot of the knowledge that I have now, um, which is nowhere near as extensive as Corey's, to to Corey herself. So, um, big thanks to Corey for that. Mm-hmm. Well, Van-
2: Vanessa's very modest.
1: Mm.
2: Um, her her journalism is breathtaking. It's amazing. And actually, when I, when I um, sort of delved into that, when I came across that, and that's when I actually came into contact with Vanessa. And as you say, Michael, she um, picked up the baton, and I mean, Vanessa you know, I quickly observed that Vanessa was just so, in, such an amazing, meticulous um, a journalist with such integrity that that allowed me to focus, go back and be, continue to focus on the um, environmental ecological movement because Vanessa needs no help whatsoever really, um, just people sharing and reading her work. I mean, she's done such a brilliant job. I can't Think of anyone that's done such great work on um, Syria's white helmets is Vanessa.
0: <laughs> yeah, there's been, uh, of course, uh, the the work on the white helmets has uh, ma- very much made you, Vanessa, a uh, a figure of, well, shall we say, controversy, uh, especially <laughs> within mainstream circles, and the idea that uh, these the white helmets uh, and that, that there is a factual basis. Uh, which you've provided in, in your your talks and in your writing and articles for the idea that they are aligned with these uh uh Nusra elements and uh, the the al-Qaeda factions that have entered into the uh, Syria uh, of course we know for people who you know care to uh, investigate i mean we know of that uh, uh, operation uh, timber sycamore which was responsible where which was disclosed and even the the, the United, New York Times has written about this that that they have been funded and armed by the uh, United States, Turkey, and uh, Saudi Arabia, and uh, this has been uh, an operation going on since two thousand thirteen, which uh, where we see all these elements enter into Syria. And interestingly enough, the White Helmets uh, has been uh, described by numerous writers, not just yourself mm-hmm. and uh, another uh, mutual friend, Ava Bartlett, but also. The uh, you know people like Robert Perry uh, or its uh, Consortium News Rick Mm -hmm. Sterling um, John Pilger uh, John Pilger Mm -hmm. yes he also uh, advocated for you as well Mm. and uh, of course there's also that important panel discussion that took place about a year ago Mm. at the UN and you presented there as well Mm. as well as uh, another fellow Um, just give us uh, uh, if you will maybe the (laughs) a quick elevator speech, just to bring <laughs> folks up to speed about the, the the case for the idea that these uh, this uh, Syrian civil defense, uh, as uh, it's been referred to in some circles, the White Helmets are actually, in fact, a propaganda construct and not uh, actual volunteer uh, helpers.
1: Um, well, effectively, the White Helmets are a shadow state construct. Um, even the fact that they call themselves the Syria Civil Defense, they're not the Syria Civil Defense. There is an existing civil defense organization that was established inside Syria in 1953, and it's the only recognized civil defense organization by the International Civil Defense Organization in Geneva. That's on record. They don't recognize the White Helmets. Why? Because the White Helmets were effectively established, incubated in Turkey and Jordan. They were established by a former British military intelligence officer, James LeMissurier, with funding from the majority of the belligerent states that have been waging this regime change war against Syria for nine years, um, primarily um, the British government and the U.S. government, both of which have funded the White Helmets to the tune of over $35 million, um, Britain actually around £40 million, and that funding is ongoing. We know that President Trump has just given them a further £4.5 million. Um, and this organization um, was created, in my opinion, because in 2013, um, the media was losing its grip on the narrative in Syria. They were being exposed as um, fabricating narratives in order to demonize and criminalize the Syrian government. We saw, of course, uh, Dani Abdul-Daim um, being exposed as faking a report from Baba Amra and Homs and a number of other reports that were extremely questionable. So the media was starting to be seriously exposed, even at UN level. So in my opinion, at this stage, um, they decided to bring in, not only to increase funding to some of what they call the citizen journalists, the embedded journalists in the areas occupied by the terrorist groups, so affiliated to the terrorist groups, or certainly sympathizing with the terrorist groups, dominated by Nusra Front, by al-Qaeda. So the White Helmets were created in um, March 2013. Again, let's look at timing. They were created just as the terrorists were using or were reported to have used chemical weapons against civilians and um, army in Khan al assal in March 2013. So the White Helmets were created at exactly this time. Six months later, of course, we had, as the inspectors arrived to investigate the alleged use of um, chemical weapons by terrorist groups, which has been denied throughout this conflict, um, as the inspectors arrived in uh, Damascus in August 2013, lo and behold, a chemical weapon attack took place in eastern Ghouta in the suburbs of Damascus, which... um, many believe was another, was the first of the staged events depicting a chemical attack to to criminalize and vilify the Syrian government. So in my opinion, the White Helmets were created for a number of reasons. One, to give a veneer of respectability to the terrorist groups. The fact that the White Helmets are operating alongside them enables the narrative that these terrorists are the moderate, the moderate rebels that are, that, as they have been described by Western media for almost uh, the full nine years. Um, but they were also brought in to produce the propaganda, this kind of, you know, m- massively advertised humanitarian organization with, um, and, you know, Cory will agree with me on this, with, a, with one of the most impressive <laughs> PR industry complexes behind them that i I think i've ever seen for such an organization i mean cory um you're the expert on the mpic but when we looked into kind of the billionaire complex that are promoting and sustaining the image of the white helmets have you ever seen anything like this
2: no i mean (laughs) actually i guess the um current thing i'm working on the the Thunberg spectacle is Mm. pretty incredible um but I mean that's nothing to do with the um what you know with this like it's not helping to stabilize a sovereign country Mm. um not yet well actually that's not true because actually um it did just do exactly that with Bolivia Mm. so that's not even true um but, yeah, I mean, I think what people really need to understand is that the, the NGOs that claim to represent civil society have been, you know, they're actually used as weapons ag- against against society, and they're funded to the tunes of, you know, trillions of dollars mm. to, um, you know, protect and expand foreign policy and empire. And NGOs, especially Purpose, which is an arm of Avaz, which incubated the um, White Helmets, and what else was there? There's four different anti-Syria um, campaigns that they developed. Mm-hmm.
0: I know that Avaz was involved with providing the uh, public relations for the war in Libya, you right. know, And uh, they were effectively tried to do the same thing with Syria.
2: Mm. Right. I mean, they're completely embedded and enmeshed with the ruling classes mm. and empire itself.
0: Could you just give us a to, like, again, maybe a, a, a elevator speech, thumbnail sketch, mm. purpose and, uh, and and who who's backing them or, or any important figures that gives us some insights into their potential motivation for uh, well, their for, interest here. Sure,
2: like purpose is an arm and keep in mind I've been writing for the past year About um, the Greta Thunberg orchestrated campaign spectacles. So um, I don't have everything at the tip of my tongue on Avaz because I haven't been um, writing um, deeply about that of late. But basically, purpose is an arm of Avaz. Um, The same, I believe, three of the same founders of Avaz are that of purpose. Um, Their motto is, is actually we remake the world we've remake the world they actually have a video of um basically Syria like being being bombed and being remade I mean it's it's really incredible it, um
0: my understanding it, it, from what you've written is that a behavioral change seems yeah, to be a specialty significant is
2: behavioral change and basically remobilizing citizens um as consumers. Mm. And so you're not even seen as, as um, an individual, you're only recognized as a consumer. And I mean, these, these I think people are starting to understand now that the nonprofit industrial complex is a really um, dangerous structure that protects, I mean, especially for any environmental movement, social justice movement. It really needs to be torn down. And I think that's why Vanessa's work is so incredibly important. People are starting to see through this. I mean, just yesterday I saw someone posting, and they said from the, and I'm sure it's someone that reads Vanessa's work as well, and they said from the you know, f- few years they've been reading Wrong Kind of Green, now they're able to watch a video um, such as produced by White Helmets or Purpose of Vaz. Mm-hmm. Um, global green new deal and they're able to see it without vanessa or i or someone else deconstructing it they're able to deconstruct it themselves Mm. so people are starting to understand the mechanisms and um how they play on emotion and that's what purpose specializes in playing on emotion. They work with um, corporations, um, they're embedded with institutions like the United Nations, World Economic Forum, World Bank, um, governments, um, so Bill Gates. They're very, very much part and parcel of the ruling classes.
0: Mm. I want to bring back, you know, Vanessa, because, Corey, you just mentioned uh, Vanessa's very important work, which includes on-the-ground reporting in Syria, all over Syria. Well, not quite all over Syria. She doesn't go into those areas (laughs) that are rebel-controlled places where, uh, you know, places where, for example, reporters like James Foley went in there and got his head cut off. So uh, I I think that's
1: probably understandable. Yeah, but it's it's also, that's a really interesting point, because that raises the question, how do organizations, media organizations like uh, CNN, Uh, managed to get into these areas, Clarissa Ward, uh, Awa Damon, how are they managing to get into these areas and not get their head chopped off, right? You you have to make the assumption that these media outlets, these reporters, are working in collaboration with the armed groups, which are dominated by al-Qaeda and ISIS. And, you know, I don't see any differentiation between Mm. ISIS and al-Qaeda. ISIS... But, but what you're saying, of,
0: just just to clarify, yeah. it, and you're not just asserting that. You're saying what what other explanation when other reporters go in there, you know,
1: and well, no, dangerous. I mean, I'm I'm, I did an in-depth research into one particular journalist, Martin Tulov, uh, of the Guardian, and I think you know he simply okay. exemplifies this statement. Um, and Alex Crawford recently was also in Idlib and was basically being escorted by Al Qaeda terrorists known terrorists yeah so we have to start raising the questions you know these are embedded while they claim that i am embedded with the syrian arab army i'd rather be embedded with an army that's defending its country against a terrorist invasion than be embedded with the terrorist groups that are committing the atrocities against the syrian people Mm -hmm. you know that's a very clear statement and that's that's verifiable but martin chulov Um, of The Guardian, when I looked through all of his reports, I mean, quite extraordinary. He entered East Aleppo from Turkey, so illegally entered Syria. He was embedded in East Aleppo with the armed groups which were dominated by Nusra Front. He was interviewing a leader of those armed groups while colleagues or, or journalist colleagues were imprisoned in the Iron Children Hospital less than 500 meters away from him. And yet, that was never reported on by him. The testimony is there from people like Theo Padnos of the, their treatment at the hands of the same terrorist groups that were effectively um, offering hospitality to Martin Shulov. So we have to raise the question, why were these journalists able to fraternize with mass murdering terrorists and come and go with impunity while other journalists didn't have the same luck? You know, valid that, that, question. It's, it's a very valid question
0: you're listening to the global research news hour broadcasting from ckuw 95.9 fm in winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across canada and the united states uh you're listening to the global research news hour my guests uh, are uh Vanessa Beely, who's a, a journalist and a war correspondent uh, who's uh, visiting Winnipeg uh, or as part of a, a six-city tour, a seven-city tour. And Corey Morningstar, uh, a writer, investigative journalist, environmental activist based in London. And um, so, Vanessa, I wanted to uh, just give you, give you a chance to, to talk about some of your own reporting, because you've interviewed oh, numerous civilians throughout Syria, and you're getting that firsthand testimony, and uh, including people who have been recently liberated from some of these uh, you know, rebel-held areas. And uh, they, they're telling you uh, quite a different story from what uh, people in the West and, and people who rely on mainstream media and even a lot of independent media are hearing about the situation in Syria. Could you maybe highlight a couple of uh, poignant examples, if I could put it that way, from your... Uh, uh,
1: Well, um, I think for me, probably the most um, poignant was um, the testimonies that I received when East Aleppo, 25% of the city of Aleppo, which was besieged for almost five years, was liberated in December 2016. And I was basically there um, going from district to district um, as it was liberated and speaking to civilians literally as they escaped from the incarceration they'd been submitted to for five years. Um, While the media for those five years had described their attempts to defend the people of East Aleppo, what they hadn't done, of course, was to describe the conditions that these people were living under, imprisoned um, by the terrorist groups that, as you say, were described as rebels. Um, But the reality was that people were being... Uh, tortured they were being detained they were being executed Um, hospitals had been converted into uh, prisons and military centers into courts of law where people were tried under extremist Sharia law and were then executed summarily Um, people were not allowed to leave they were being held as hostages they were being held as human shields they might have family members in West Aleppo those family members were not allowed to make contact Um, or to visit their family in East Aleppo, for example. Um, If they tried to leave by the humanitarian corridors during the final days of the conflict, they were being shelled, they were being killed um, and prevented from leaving. Um, You know, the, the array of crimes that were carried out by these terrorist groups against civilians, if children were injured, they were not receiving any medical treatment, their limbs were being amputated because that was easier for the terrorists to deal with than actually having to treat them in the hospitals. Um, all the hospitals that were claimed to have been destroyed by the um, Syrian and Russian military campaign to liberate the area were not destroyed. They were Many of them were still operating as military centres or prisons. Those that were operating as hospitals were only treating um, the military um, armed groups. And... Um, So fundamentally, what all these liberated areas have demonstrated through testimony from civilians, from myself actually visiting, for example, in East Aleppo, the hospitals that were claimed to be destroyed, is the sheer mendacity of the media in the West. You know, they fabricated the narratives. I mean, I remember standing in the streets in East Aleppo as the area was being liberated and hearing the UN put out a report that the Syrian Arab army were raping the women in those streets. This was picked up by all the Western media who were not present in East Aleppo and immediately disseminated as a, as a factual story. Um, I did a report for RT at that time. I was standing in the streets. I said, you know, this is absolute rubbish. The majority of the Syrian Arab army who are liberating this area come from this area. They're not going to put their lives on the line to rescue their own families and then rape them. There is no, I mean, we're laughing, but this there was one of the most- to uh, question
0: these claims.
1: Well, more than good reasons. I mean, it didn't happen. I was there. Yeah. It did not happen. You know, yeah. I saw Syrian army carrying old ladies down the stairs, helping them out with their luggage, putting them into trucks and making sure that they got to the medical centers, giving uh, exiting civilians tea and, and food. For some of the children, it was the first food they'd had um, for months.
0: What are the civilians that you've been speaking to, what are they saying about the white helmets? Uh, uh, <laughs> what, what percentage of them, if I could put it that way, are... Uh, you know, promoting their work, uh, rescuing people from the rubble?
1: The Syrian civilians, the majority, apart from uh, the armed groups, the terrorist groups, reject the White Helmets. uh, Absolutely 100%. Many of them didn't even know who they were. I mean, I remember when I was in East Aleppo and I was saying, do you know, you know, do you know the White Helmets? They just looked at me puzzled. And then when I said, Okay, well, the civil defense. They go, oh, yeah, Nusra Front, civil defense. Yeah, yeah, you know, we know who they are. (laughs) (laughs) Literally, that was it. Yeah, You know, and that must raise the question, well, hold on, where are all these White Helmet movies being made? Because nobody, including Syrian Arab Red Crescent, had ever seen them actually working with the White Helmet on. But I received, I mean, I can't tell how many testimonies of them stealing belongings from um, the bodies of civilians killing civilians participating in executions running organ trafficking operations child abduction operations using children in staged events Uh, the list is endless of the accusations levied against the white helmets by the syrian people and this claim that all the evidence against them is just russian disinformation is nonsense Mm-hmm. The majority of the evidence against them comes from the White Helmets themselves. It comes from their own videos, their selfies with Nusra Front leaders. They have videos of themselves celebrating alongside the terrorist groups. Um, there are videos of them participating in executions or mopping up after executions, dismembering the bodies of prisoners of war or, uh, sorry, of um, Syrian Arab army soldiers executing prisoners of war. You know, the the list is endless, and this video evidence and this photographic evidence is produced by them, not by Russia or by me.
0: Yeah, and (laughs) for that matter, uh, their own social media accounts, which uh, displayed a a definite affinity for those uh, groups. Uh, It's unfortunate that many of the people who are attacking you based on out-of-context tweets (laughs) are not examining the tweets of some of these white helmets. Mm. Um, but uh, another important point that I think we need to mention is that the white helmets uh, the, and their videos uh, are apparently also being used as uh, effectively as foreign correspondence. You know that <laughs> we're just taking these videos. We don't have any corroboration or verification. Mm. What airstrike is this connected with? You know who are these people that are being rescued? We have we have none of that, mm. and that's the, that that goes up as part of the news.
1: Yeah, and I think what's really important is the work of um, Mike King, an author and historian, who sent me an archive of (laughs) 4,354 tweets put out by the White Helmets um, up to October 2019. Now, bearing in mind that the the propaganda says, or the marketing says, that the White Helmets are, one, documenting war crimes, and two, they've rescued 115,000 people. He determined from those tweets, and we have to remember the White Helmets use social media extensively as their information feed to the public, as their propaganda feed to the public to to manufacture consent for continued humanitarian, in inverted commas, intervention in Syria. Um, And of those more than 4,000 tweets, um, he determined, uh, Mike King determined, that only three were recorded uh, with their surname. Um, And only 88 videos. So they only recorded, I think, 625 incidents of rescuing people. That's a tiny percentage of the 115,000 that's being claimed. And um, as I mentioned in my talk, you know, the monitoring of the White Helmet activity and their statistics is a closed-loop propaganda circle. You know, they're funded by the British government and all the belligerent hostile states that are waging this war. Um, they produce other NGOs. I mean, and, and Corey will totally appreciate this system. You know, they'll, they've created other NGO- NGOs as kind of intermediaries. Then they rely on those implementing partners, as they call them, like Mayday Rescue, established by the founder of the White Helmets, to act as an intermediary. Um, they rely upon Mayday Rescue to gather the stats from the White Helmets. So all of these organisations <laughs> are funded by the governments that have a declared interest in regime change in syria to provide them with the stats which justifies their presence in syria you know i mean it, it's so insidious
0: indeed and uh, i mean you mentioned uh the mayday rescue and mm. uh, and and james le Miserier. of course there's a big story uh, about how this uh, founder of the white helmets uh died under mysterious circumstances and so uh, there's been uh, a lot of strange uh, corporate behavior around that uh, media behavior around that um, you know the you know, sort of suicide or was it somebody whatever the the issue was there but there there were concerns about uh, you know the money that was coming in potentially being embezzled and mm-hmm. then maybe that was a motive <laughs> for this because there's a, there's a tremendous amount of money that was going into this initially and now re- you're seeing with developments in Syria, you know, and uh, I believe you mentioned uh, in, in an article that you wrote recently and in your talk that uh, the Netherlands had come to question, where is this money going? So I, mean, I wonder if you want to sort of break down some of your thoughts about the death of Le Missouri and, and what that means for the uh, in, in the context of the White Helmets and this uh, complex of uh, this uh, uh, war billionaire uh, uh, network. <laughs>
1: Yeah. I mean, um, what was extraordinary was when uh, the death of LeMessurier kind of broke on social media in particular was the the flurry of reaction from um, various media uh, individuals on Twitter. I mean, Mark Urban from the BBC put out a series of tweets in which he effectively said that the criticism of the White Helmets and James LeMessurier was a prelude to murder. That was his his actual description of this. So clearly pointing the fingers at, you know, people like myself, even like Corey, anybody that has criticized the White Helmets, particularly, of course, Russia. Um, And then he deleted those tweets and he put out a slightly watered-down version of what he said. I was contacted by PBS um, to ask for a comment for an interview and the question was basically, do I feel responsible in any way for the death of James LaMazzuria because of my very public... Um criticism of him, so <laughs> you know, my, uh, my <laughs> accusation. I mean, my answer was, well, there's no official autopsy yet, so how on earth can you even determine who might be responsible for his death? I mean, what if he was killed by somebody? Am I responsible for that? and actually, that as far as I'm aware, that program's actually not gone out, so I think everyone started reacting, you know in this kind of protectionist way of James lao, but When I spoke to Peter Ford, the former British ambassador in Syria, he told me that he had his suspicions that um, the UK Foreign Office was actually looking into Mayday Rescue, and maybe one of the triggers of that, of course, was the Dutch government report into the lack of transparency and the um, funneling of funds from the various sponsors to the White Helmets that it may well have ended up in the hands of the terrorist groups. surprise. Surprise. Um, and But what he believed was that it was very possible that James Le Miserier had started um, basically creaming funds off the top for himself. Um, and actually, Turkish um, media reports, interestingly, kind of concurred with that. They said that they believed that he had worries about not being able to pay back, um, having dipped his hand into the kind of, you know, the fund, the White Helmet Fund for some time. What is now coming out um, again in Turkish media, and, you know, Western media has gone very quiet on this, and what they appeared to want to do almost immediately is to distance James LaMazurier from the White Helmet. Suddenly they started to revise history. They One of their started, top
0: leaders yeah, said, oh, no, he's not the founder. Exactly
1: which was just bizarre because, you know, that's been recorded throughout all of James LeMissurier's interviews, etc. And, of course, what we found suddenly was some of these media interviews were starting to almost disappear. They were disappearing from the web. His Wikipedia page was being edited furiously by Philip Cross. As the, have
0: yours. And, yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so th- there appeared to be this incredible scramble um, to, to cover up, basically, and to distance... Uh, The white helmets. So, in other words, to kind of um, protect the white helmets for any possible corruption of their image. If, for example, I'm guessing, if James Lomisuri was um, financially double-dealing or you know um, using the funds for his own purposes, etc. And then um, in the last few days, uh, the Daily Sabah, which is actually a pro Erdogan media outlet has been piecing together the information. They actually got hold of the CCTV footage. Um, what is interesting is Emma Winberg, the wife of James LeMissouri, has very clear connections herself to the UK Foreign Office. She worked within the Foreign Office for some time as a political officer, which is a euphemistic term for someone that's embedded um, with the various groups that are used to destabilize countries like Syria. In other words, you know, the, protecting the armed groups as such. Um... And she also was co-founder of Incostrat uh, with Paul Tilley. Now, Incostrat um, was funded by the same Conflict Stability and Security Fund um, to, that funded the White Helmets and Mayday Rescue and various other organizations to produce PR um, for some of the most tyrannical armed groups, including Jaish al-Islam, which occupied Douma. So th- there's a clear kind of connection um, with the British Foreign Office, with Emma Winberg. Now, Emma Winberg's testimony is now proven to be false. She basically said um, Missouri took a sleeping pill at 2.30 a.m., but there is now a witness testimony that they were arguing at 3 a.m. Um, Farouk um, al-Habib, who was uh, a member of both May Day and White Helmets, visited Missouri earlier that day. That wasn't recorded in Western media, only in Turkish media. And now the theory that Sabah are putting out is that Missouri had climbed out of the window to escape somebody that had come into the apartment. He got onto the roof and he tried to jump a relatively short distance from the roof um, to the next roof. We assumed to escape, and he fell. He missed the he missed the jump. That is what they are now concluding, based on the CCTV footage, based on the evidence that they now have. So. It's looking more and more likely that actually it was a bit of a hit on James Missouri. Quite why, of course, at the same time the Duma chemical weapon attack narrative was failing, it was being shown that Missouri was responsible for meeting with OPCW leaders in Turkey and producing um, witnesses to provide evidence for the now proven to be uh, fabricated.
0: Uh, report. Yeah, there were whistleblowers who came forward, yeah. and uh, you know, higher ups uh, mentioned basically what it it turned out is that they were suppressing evidence that would have uh, changed the, the the conclusions of the report, and that, mm. that, for example, a canister that was that had to have been <laughs> delivered by hand, and uh, and other issues. Uh, interestingly enough, there was a uh, a reporter uh, with Newsweek, mainstream media, mm. and uh, it was an interesting. Um, that he was uh he he was threatened uh, like they basically no he 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 had shown his intention to display this information mm. and they were they they were saying no we were not going to publish that and uh, they were talking he about resigned. it confidentially so yeah he ended up resigning mm. from that position. Uh, yeah,
1: yeah. yeah
0: and uh, he said that um and I quote from his uh, tweet, I have collected evidence of how they suppressed the story, in addition to evidence from another case where info inconvenient to U.S. government was removed, though it was factually correct. He hmm. said, and uh, also he said, I was threatened with legal action, you know, from the employers, uh, you know, ha- having uh, inserted that uh, confidentially. Uh, confidentially clause into the contract, apparently for an occasion just like this. And he also stated that he's seeking legal advice from specialists in whistleblowing and that, quote, at the very least, I will publish evidence I have without divulging the confidential information. Interesting, coming from a mainstream media reporter, uh, Mm. basically, you know, so it's it's interesting that uh, people who are picking up on this sort of thing and, and the way the media is is reacting to all of this uh, information. And, and on the topic of the media, I just want to mention another figure, the legendary American journalist Seymour Hersh. Uh, he researched and refuted the assumptions uh, of that, that were put forward by uh, people like this uh, Giovanni uh, woman who's uh, no. <laughs> what was that uh, in the? Uh Janine
1: De Giovanni.
0: Yes, oh. yeah, she, she one of your. Uh, <laughs> she's, she's made a, a minor career out of yeah. um, <laughs> attacking you uh, and uh, you know, trying to discredit you. And uh, anyway, he's uh, regarding the August 2013 chemical weapons attacks near Dom, uh, D- Damascus. He put out an investigation called. Uh, the red line and rat line, which provided the evidence that it was the car- that the gas attack was carried out by opposition groups. Uh, you know, this is the guy who broke lie okay, the, the Milly massacre. Um. He has a Pulitzer Prize sitting on his mantle, and he can't get this published anywhere in the United States. Yeah. He had to have it published by the London Review of Books. Okay, so mm. th- this is one other, one more example of how mainstream media is dropping the ball. And uh, they're, they're using, I'd be like, not only a Giovanni, and uh, I can't quite remember what uh, outlet she was uh, writing from, uh, but uh, another one, uh, Chris York. Okay. Uh, that he, One of his articles was the...
1: Uh, one. There were quite a few. Oh, no, 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 I, mean, I mean, in terms of uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, okay. some of
0: the uh, attacks that you've uh, had to experience, uh, the, the, the spears, they've uh, been c- citing a, an article that came out uh, around the time you got into Canada and talking about how... Uh, well, you know, a lot of these usual attacks against you. But the point is that Chris York, I believe he started his uh, discreditation campaign against you around the time that this uh, uh, Emma Winberg became the chief impact officer <laughs> yeah. for May, May, May Day, Day Rescue.
1: Rescue. Yeah, which is absolutely. an interesting,
0: again, g- yeah. getting back to the timing. Well, in question. fact, they,
1: all The media smear campaign began after she joined May Day. Was his not
0: like the lead, and then it's yeah, he he basically
1: led in. Um, and then it was picked up by people like Olivia Solon at um, Guardian, Guardian, uh, Oliver Cam, you know, a well known uh, (laughs) protector of establishment NATO intervention, um, globalism, etc., and um, uh, various others. I mean, the Syria campaign, which, you know, Corey will recognize. Yeah. They produced, the, I think they were the best. They produced a 48-page report in which I was described, I think, as... I, I don't think I was by then the goddess of propaganda. I think I was a little bit more, you know, lower down the scale. It was Brian Whitaker that <laughs> yeah. took it up to goddess that of That was propaganda. a Giovanni
0: line, the goddess of Syria.
1: Well, yeah, no, Asia. but she picked that up from Brian Whitaker. Brian oh, Whitaker was the okay. one that created that. Let's, let's give him credit for okay. it. <laughs>
0: sure you went on a plagiarizing
1: but I mean I'd like to just ask Corey here because um, you know with your work on, on Greta <laughs> you've also received um, a huge amount of backlash from um, not only social media but also in the media itself and I wanted to just ask Corey what she thinks is causing this because very clearly her work is not attacking Greta as a, as a kid as a person right it's attacking those that are exploiting her and we had the same thing with banner alabad you know because we were saying this kid's being exploited to basically promote war um and this is child abuse in my opinion but we were attacked for attacking Bashar. But that's not at all what we were doing. So I just kind of wanted to ask Corey. Yeah, that, that um, was the young
0: child that was yeah, calling for no flying. Yeah, in Aleppo zone. and
1: calling for you know Assad and everyone to be killed and for there to be a yeah, world war Yeah, who barely free. speaks any English. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean. So I just wanted to um, ask Corey <laughs> what she thinks is behind this backlash. I've just
2: been enjoying listening you <laughs> to converse. Um, well, the backlash is basically the same as the backlash against Vanessa. But they are trying to discredit um, my work before, so people won't read it. I mean, once people read the work, I mean, they're just they're they're actually. I mean, they're just blown away. So they they're. That's the key to get people to not read it. I mean, that's why they come after Vanessa and try to discredit her. That's the reason for throwing those labels, you know, conspiracy theory, tinfoil hat, all those others that Tim Hayward um, so articulates and um, deconstructs, you know, everything behind that. Um, They just basically don't want people to read Vanessa's work because once they read it, They begin to understand. They begin to see through. You know the the manipulation, the media manipulation, the nonprofit industrial complex manipulation. People start to see through it, and then they'll begin to follow the work of journalists like Vanessa, journalists like um, myself, like others. And so it's really, really important for them to keep that up. Um, But I mean, it doesn't work. People. A lot of it, like the attacks on my work by Mombio, the Guardian, which is, you know, um, an arm of Empire, they all that's done is put people towards my work, read the work, and then they follow the work and they're like, just what's going on? It's <laughs> It's, um, you know, like, like Vanessa's work, my work's meticulous. It's detailed. It's overly detailed. I mean, it has to be, or people wouldn't even believe it. You know, we're writing about stuff that other people will not write about. No one funds this type of work. You know, um, we're not, we don't have millions of dollars of foundation funding. People, this is not the type of work, you know, that, that anyone's going to get behind.
0: I feel it kind of important. I, I just want to point out at this point that uh, a lot of the, uh, the the hit pieces that have been going out against uh, Vanessa and and Ava and and yourself, Corey, uh, just to to follow up on that. I mean, it's it's, uh, it's I find it kind of remarkable how little actual they they actually address the, the <laughs> things that you're saying. The, no, they the facts that you put them. on Slay. They, mm-hmm. It's it's all guilt by association <laughs> and uh, yeah. you know things like you know a cleverly cropped uh, picture of <laughs> Vanessa with Bashir al-Assad it, ignoring the
2: context. I mean, yeah, that's never, not an accident. They never address what's been written. No. They never come back and say, this isn't true, this isn't factual. It's just, um, you know, basically, like I said, the labels, right? The framing. I mean, that's what NGOs do. That's, that's how they're effective. They work on emotion. They work on conformity, peer pressure. They, they work on framing, on language. And it's very, very effective, and Vanessa's work helps, you know, unveil that. Um, my work, the same, That it helps unveil that. We, we need more people writing about this. I mean, Vanessa is such a role model for anyone who um, is interested in journalism, who wants to work towards a better world, who wants to work against imperialism. You know, um, forget about going to, to school. <laughs> the apprentice under Vanessa follow her lead follow her work I mean we need more people doing this we there's only so so much one person can write about I mean the amount of work that Vanessa's done is mind-blowing mm. I mean I'm like well I, I
1: just so we, much, <laughs> I, I've really been my
2: ju- voice, so much gratitude I
1: no, but I mean the same goes out to you, Corey, and, and to I mean journalists like Whitney Webb at Mint Press News yeah. is also Oh yeah, she's amazing. And it's yeah. exhausting
2: work. Yeah, it is. And it it's and it's you know you just feel like the weight of the world is on you, and it, it literally, you know, to have that to have that empathy, it just literally suck, can suck the life right out of you. So it takes like a lot of strength, you mm-hmm. know, and you have to be able to, um, you know. Like, we're a shield, you Mm -hmm. know, against all the people coming after you, you know, people that are funded and paid to protect and further the interests of foreign policy empire. Like, it's, you know, not easy. Mm.
0: I, I, I hate to, to kind of cut folks short, because we are running to the end of our time, but I, I wanted to put in one last question, because I, when I spoke to Ken Stone of the Hamilton Coalition to Stop the War, he seemed to be expressing some optimism that the, uh, the, the, the narrative was breaking down, and, and he pointed out that uh, the, uh, the, the attempts to manufacture consent around the Syria war they're not working so they have to resort to these sorts of tactics of of trying to deplatform <laughs> Vanessa and and Ava Bartlett and and other types of uh, folks uh who who are trying to speak truth to power and uh, I I wanted to know get a sense from both of you uh what kind of optimism you have that this uh rather uh, cruel uh agenda that of uh, you know, of you basically these very wealthy elites uh, using uh, regime change uh, in conjunction with, uh, you know, a, a sort of a, a greenwashing of uh, you know environmental uh, uh, action. Uh, will they prevail, or, or will the uh, the truth uh, free the people? Because it could be kind of discouraging for a lot of on the ground uh, organizers and uh, independent journalists. So what are your thoughts?
1: Um. <clears throat> Well, I think I have a huge advantage because I spend a lot of time inside Syria, and I guess that my optimism comes from the fact that while there is still i believe like huge apathy um in the West towards you know the the criminality of their own governments i mean in the u k we've just voted in, you know. <laughs> i mean i mean i just, I'm just too depressed to even talk about that really <laughs> um but Uh, when you're in Syria and and you see the resilience and the resourcefulness of the people that have gone through a nine-year war, and it's still ongoing, but um, they've reclaimed 85% of their territory. Um, They're rebuilding. They're restoring. They're um, returning to life pretty much as normal as they can get it. I mean... This year, uh, Christmas will be celebrated in the Christ- Syrian Christian towns on the border with Idlib that were liberated earlier this year for the first time without mortars. The, the threat of mortars, etc. So the optimism for me comes from the revivalism inside Syria, for example, and also I think the shift in the global power balance towards the non-aligned nations. You know, we're we're seeing a very powerful alliance coming out of this, and I think this is one of the most optimistic parts of this conflict. One, history will be written by the victor for the first time, a victor that has resisted um, the the overarching power of imperialism. It didn't turn into Libya. No. And then you have this sort of um, shift in global power towards uh, Russia, China, towards the east, basically. And the U.S. is kind of, it, it kind of can't do anything about it. You know, and so I, I do believe we're kind of seeing the end of the US empire right now. Okay, it might still take a few years for it to um, morph into something we hope a little bit more constructive, but and we're certainly going to see, um, you know, we're going to see a lot more action before then because, like any cornered animal, it's going to fight.
0: Well, uh, Corey, uh, Vanessa, I'm afraid we're uh, at the end of our time, but I really want to thank you both for uh, coming on the show. It's been. Uh a great privilege. I I really enjoyed this conversation and I'm sure our listeners will as well. So uh, thanks for your time.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you, Michael. I've
0: been speaking with Corey Morningstar, uh, investigative journalist, environmental activist and writer, as well as Vanessa Bealy, the noted uh, independent journalist and uh, war correspondent. And They joined us, uh, well, Vanessa joined us uh, here Mm -hmm. in our CKW studio. Vanessa joined us. Corey joined us from London. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can hear our program every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States. You can also download our program from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I'm series host, creator, and producer Michael Welch. Thanks for listening. Please join us again next week.